Well, people of God, we have a couple of chapters yet in Daniel, and we will try and, and preach uh, a couple of sermons to conclude Daniel beginning next week, after which I hope to turn to 1 Peter and, uh, and to be there for a while. Uh, hopefully, we will in some depth look at the epistle of 1 Peter. But for this morning, the first Sunday of a new year, I would like to preach from 2 Samuel chapter 23, if you will turn there in your copy of God's Word. And as we look at this passage this morning, uh, my own purpose is to preach a sermon that is one of sheer encouragement uh, for the people of God in the midst of this fallen and sinful world about the covenant of grace. So we come to chapter 23, we will read the first seven verses. Our focus will be on verse 5. Will you pray with me? And now, Heavenly Father, how deeply grateful we are for the covenant of grace. How thankful we are that as sinners who indeed cannot merit our own salvation, that Jesus Christ has merited our salvation on our behalf that in our place condemned he stood and sealed our pardon with his blood. Indeed, our hearts do sing on this first Sunday of the year and always, hallelujah, what a savior. And so, Heavenly Father, whatever the needs of this congregation may be, and whatever the needs of individual Christians may be, no matter how we have failed, no matter how we have struggled, no matter those things that burden us, May we be encouraged by this word this morning. And we pray also, Heavenly Father, that as we turn to those apocalyptic passages in Daniel and later to 1 Peter, and as we and the other ministers work through passages of Scripture over this coming year, that the Holy Spirit would work deeply and wonderfully for the conversion of the lost and the upbuilding of the saint. We pray, Heavenly Father, then thy blessing upon the reading and exposition of this text. For we ask it for the glory of the Son of God, and in his name we pray, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Will you stand with your copy of God's Word? 2 Samuel chapter 23. This is the Word of God. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For he, will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and with the shaft of a spear and they are utterly consumed with fire. 
Now, while you're still standing, you will notice in verse 5 that the ESV translates this. There's a translation issue here, and I simply have to point it out. They translate the beginning of verse 5 as a question, for does not my house stand so with God? Frankly, I think the better translation is in the old version, and this is the way that it reads in 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, in the old version. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. The word of the Lord, please be seated. These words of David, the last words of David, were not absolutely his last words. These are his last public words and his last prophetic words. Matthew Henry well titles this section, The Last Will and Testament of King David. And I want us to see that David's hope was in the eternal covenant that God had made with him and that this also must be our hope and our security. And especially as we enter into a new year, I hope that the words, everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure, will be words that often will come to your mind and will steal your heart in the days ahead. I pray that you simply will not forget this text and will not forget this sermon. Find here the deep theology of redemptive history and behind that the eternal Trinitarian plan of God to save you, his people, from our sins. Now, I wish we could take time with the opening verses, and we cannot do that this morning with our communion and focus on verse 5, but to mention briefly, the words are opened with a reflection by the author of 2 Samuel on David's early history and how he was taken from being a shepherd boy to become the national leader of Israel. And it is ascribing to God's grace this wonderful mercy. David's prophetic role in writing and the inspiration of his words, especially of the psalm he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel, are underscored in verse 2. And in verses 2 through 4, we have actually a messianic prophecy. Prophecy because David, as type, cannot sustain the words. Behind the words are the, the kinds of words that the Father would have spoken to the Son in eternity past, in which we, in which we see something of the brilliance of light with the coming of the Messiah himself. And we could compare Malachi chapter 4, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, or Luke 1.78, Zechariah's prophecy, the dayspring from on high hath visited us. This is high exalted language of light and brilliance that references the coming of the Messiah. Now it's in the context of that prophecy, which is of course the fulfillment of God's covenant, that becomes the context in which David's last words give this wonderful last will and testament, or if you will, his wonderful confession of his faith in the God of the covenant, which leads us to the verse that we are focused upon this morning, verse 5. 
Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. So will you, looking at verse 5, see first of all with me, reliance on the covenant. Reliance on the covenant. And will you rely upon this covenant God in this year that we have now entered into. The covenant of grace is a pervasive biblical theme. After Adam broke the covenant of works, God instituted in history that covenant planned from eternity past that we call the covenant of grace. In Genesis 3.15, we have the first promise, the conquering seed of the woman that is the unfolding of the covenant of grace. When we come to Noah, we find the salvation of his own family and the preservation of the world so that the Messiah will come, the unfolding of the covenant of grace. With Abraham, the seed of Abraham is ultimately Christ himself, and by faith we are, we are taught to believe the covenant promises. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15:6. And then when we read of Moses, the covenant must be by blood sacrifice. That's the stress in the Mosaic economy. Until we come to David, who is the king, who is the type of the greater king who would come. And when we come to the New Testament, we have the greater king who has come, of whom we have celebrated his birth over this entire month of December past. Christ, with his coming, the covenant is fulfilled through his shedding of his own covenant blood for his people. So you see, there is one unified covenant of grace throughout the Bible. Though variously administered in Revelation history, it is one in its essence. As one of the old writers put it, it is made in eternity, it is performed in time. The language of covenant, people of God... The language of the covenant of grace that we dwell upon this morning used to always be on the lips of reformed Christians. It was just, just in, in the common everyday parlance and, and discussion about the things of God that would be between the people of God. Recover it this morning. Recover speech about the covenant that God has made with his people. Because this is not a peripheral idea in Holy Scripture. This is at the core of understanding the Bible. The Bible is a book of the covenant. The entire history of the Bible is covenant history. The realization of the covenant is the purpose of creation and recreation. It is not a peripheral truth in theology. It should not be a peripheral thing in your personal godliness, but it should be at the heart and core of your Christian life and your Christian walk. This truth should dominate us that we serve a covenant God, a gracious covenant God who has made a covenant with his people. Behind this verse 5 and behind what we are saying this morning about the covenant is the agreement of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in eternity past. Ineffable, we cannot begin to understand this agreement, but the agreement that has at its core the voluntary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. The covenant of grace is variously defined by different theologians throughout history. 
a bond and blood sovereignly administered, O. Palmer Robertson, a sovereign administration of grace, Professor John Murray, the ectopal reflection of the covenant life of God himself, of God's divine Trinitarian life. It is a co covenant, it is a communion of friendship, Herman Hooksema. The way by which God through Christ becomes the property of the sinner and by which he in turn becomes the property of God, Grendike. And all of those definitions and others that I could bring this morning, they're all right because this theme of covenant is so pervasive and so multifarious. And God has made with his elect the covenant of grace of whom Christ is the mediator and the surety. In its essence, it is inseparably related to God's purpose of election. Genesis 17:21. but my covenant will I establish with Isaac. In Isaac shall my seed be called. He has a people. And while some benefit only externally from the covenant, you are a part of the covenant in terms of external privileges. Maybe you are baptized but not yet converted. Perhaps you're a part of the people of God externally. No small thing, a very important thing. It's a wonderful atmosphere and an atmosphere that God uses, especially in the lives of our children. Nonetheless, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And especially in the ninth chapter of Romans, you see this inseparable relationship between the covenant of grace and God's electing plan and purpose. So while some benefit only from external privileges, the essence of the covenant of grace is God's friendship. Do you hear it? God's friendship with his people and his determination to save his people for time and eternity from our sins, despite our sins, despite our failings, despite all of the issues that we face in life. Can you not see the comfort in this that your minister, as God's ambassador preaching the word, desires his congregation to know and feel within your heart as you move on through this upcoming year? Can you see the comfort here? Are you not now, believer, comforted in the thought of this almighty condescension to redeem and save his people from our sins? The condescension of the triune God to save you and to befriend you. Did I say befriend you? Yes. What else is it? But the shed blood is covenant blood. That covenant established with his people was reconciliatory, and reconciliation means making friends of enemies. The covenant of grace is God's reaching down in sovereignty and establishing friendship through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Here in 2 Samuel, the blood anticipated, Christ anticipated for us the blood that has been shed that is eternally efficacious. And so, believer, in covenant, the Lord has saved us from the dunghill of sin. Well, that's what we see in this opening point, that this covenant of grace, God's, God's wondrous purpose and plan unfolded in history, this is the covenant upon which we rely. Do you rely upon this God of the covenant? Do you rely yourself upon this covenant of grace? Well, let us go more deeply and let the comfort roll as we next consider, and this will be the second thing from verse 5, characteristics of the covenant of grace, characteristics of the covenant of grace. 
So let's read verse 5 again. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. What are the characteristics of the covenant of grace according to verse 5? Well, the first characteristic is that God himself is the author of this covenant. You see it here, don't you? Although it be not so with my house, yet God, yet he, God, yet he, the antecedent of he is God, hath made with me an everlasting covenant. He hath made with me. God hath made with me. God himself is the author of this covenant. He didn't say to Abraham, Abraham, would you like to be in covenant with me? He condescended in sovereign grace and he established a covenant of grace with Abraham. Who? This rock of Israel, this almighty, this all-sufficient God who needs no one and nothing outside of himself, let us be plain, has condescended in grace to establish his covenant with us, his people. John Owen said it beautifully. Uh, Now, God making this covenant, he engages according to his power, goodness, faithfulness, so that we have the reputation of God to secure us of the making good of this covenant. So saith the soul, I will retreat unto the covenant because God hath made it, who is all sufficient. Isn't that beautifully put? Owen says, look, the reputation of God is behind the covenant. And therefore, because God's character is here, his reputation is, so to speak, on the line. Then we may retreat under that covenant. We may go to this covenant God with the needs of our hearts and the needs of our souls Stop being so wrapped up in myself and being wrapped up in him and the glory of this author of the covenant of grace. But also, it is personal. Notice verse 5 again. He hath made with me, says David. Now, I'm asking you this morning by faith to look at this word and to be able to say, he hath made with me, not only with David, not only with Abraham, not only with the saints of old, but he hath made with me a covenant of grace ordered in all things. He hath made it with me. Robert Murray McShane said so beautifully, God makes the covenant with a sinner. God makes the covenant with a sinner. Not good people, with sinners. God makes the covenant with a sinner to lay hold on Christ. Then the covenant made with Christ is put into the sinner's hand its conditions being fulfilled already by Jesus. It was God that brought David to lay hold on that covenant. By his almighty power, he softened David's heart, changed his will, and made him gladly cleave to Christ as his covenant head. It's beautifully put. In the hands of the Redeemer, this covenant of grace is brought to you, the sinner, and placed within your hands when you receive Christ by faith. And notice the yet. Again, this is the authorized version translation, which I think is right. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. The point here is David's house was a mess. David's house was a wreck. You know the history of David. You know his own sin. You know the consequences. You know the chastisement. You know that how the Lord recovered him, but you also know about Absalom and others in his house. His house was a mess. And he says, yet, yet, despite this reality, 
there's a greater reality God hath made with me this everlasting covenant. God did this for David despite his ungodly house, despite his own sin and failing for which he was forgiven in Christ. David trusted Christ, never doubt it. The Old Testament saints, believing the promise of God, trusted in Christ who was to come. John Owen again says, under present distresses and the saddest prospect of future troubles, it is the duty and wisdom and the privilege of believers to betake themselves for relief and support unto the covenant of God. Nothing can befall them, no case happen for which there is no relief provided. And it is the greatest and best relief that can be provided for any case whatsoever. What is your need? Owen is right. On the basis of this verse and all that the Bible teaches about the covenant of grace, go to the God of the covenant who has shown his love to you by the shedding of precious covenant blood of his son. Embrace him, trust him, believe him, rely upon him. Why has the church virtually forgotten this old doctrine of the covenant of grace foundational in scripture and upheld God's struggling people throughout the centuries. I feel almost as if I'm uncovering for some of you a secret that has been right before your eyes as you've been reading the Bible and perhaps have not paid much attention to it. Have you never sung his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood? His oath, his covenant, his blood What have you been singing? You've been singing these very truths, you see, that God has established his covenant of grace with his people. It is personal. The Holy Spirit opens the heart, grants faith, grants repentance, so that you embrace the God of the covenant and this covenant of friendship is made with you. I wonder, is the Holy Spirit reaching down in sovereignty this morning and giving you faith to lay hold on the promise of the covenant? Yes, you personally, do you see your name written on the covenant of grace? So we see that this covenant has God as its author is personal, but it's also everlasting, isn't it? Again, verse 5, He has made with me an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. Well, what does this mean? It means it has no beginning. Jeremiah 31.3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Due to the connection between election and the essence of the covenant, Gerhardus Voss is certainly right when he says, The best proof that he will never cease to love us is that he never began. The best proof that he will never cease to love us is that there never was a beginning to that love. He's always loved his people. So it had no beginning, but also it's an everlasting covenant in that it has no ending. Hebrews 13, the blood of the everlasting covenant. The point is, it's always everlastingly efficacious, though once for all shed. God's covenant with his people is from eternity to eternity. As Richard Alline, the Puritan, said, my eternity, it's as if God is speaking, you see. Alline puts it this way, God saying to his people, my eternity shall be the date of your happiness. 
<laughs> my eternity shall be the date of your happiness. Blessed is the man, happy is the man. Where do you try to find your happiness? You won't find it in the things of this world. You'll only find it in the God of the covenant. When did your eternal saving happiness begin? In eternity, in the eternity of God, in his eternal decree. It is an everlasting covenant. But verse 5 also says, maybe you'll glance down and look again, that it is an ordered covenant. He hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, comprehensively ordered for his people. Well, is it not comprehensively ordered? Can you see nothing of the wisdom of God here? God's wisdom is part of that ordering. His wisdom is seen in his purposes and in his plans. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. So rely on it. The Lord knows the best ends and purposes for us. He makes all things work together for good to his covenant people. The very manner of our redemption displays his wisdom and no part of his covenant is left to chance. And to say that the covenant is ordered by God is to say that it is perfect. His glory and your eternal welfare were in his mind as he established this covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit everlastingly and instituted it in history. It's confirmed by wisdom. It's confirmed also, ordered, if you will, by blood, by the shed blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, we enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, the blood of the covenant, once shed, once and once only. The ordering of the covenant is through the sacrifice of Christ for us. The ordering of the covenant is also through the work of the Holy Spirit, is it not? Who grants to you faith and repentance, the Holy Spirit. Who assures you that this covenant of grace is your covenant, that God is your covenant God, it's the Holy Spirit. Who gives to us hearts to love him and to fear him, but the Holy Spirit. The covenant of grace is unconditional, people of God. It is God who establishes and who maintains it. When God says, I will put my spirit within them, how could it be anything other than unconditional? Until the Holy Spirit is put within us, we do not even perceive our need of the spirit of God. Only he can sprinkle the blood of Christ on our defiled consciences. I remember an illustration that Spurgeon used in a different connection uh, in one of, his, one of the volumes of his sermons in which he spoke of a woman that lived a profligate life. She was an unbeliever and uh, had committed gross crimes and she was, uh, she was hanged uh, by the neck until dead, so it was thought. Uh, but when they cut the rope, even though she appeared to be dead, later they took her to bury her and it was found that she was alive. Well, I don't understand the legalities of it, but evidently she couldn't be hung twice. And so she went back uh, to her life. The thing is, she went back to her old life, nothing changed. And Spurgeon's point in that illustration that he had gotten from somewhere, someone else was simply the point that I'm making here. It is only the Holy Spirit that can change your heart. You'd say, you're an unbeliever here? Boy, if I went through that experience, I would change some things. Well, maybe you would, but you wouldn't be converted. This woman lived the same way. It requires the Holy Spirit to apply the blood of the covenant to the heart, to cleanse the heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. 
But notice it says ordered in all things. That means there's not some little thing about God's relationship with you that is left out of his ordering. It is completely comprehensive with reference to God's accomplishing it. It is ordered in all things. With reference to our believing it, it is ordered in all things. With reference to our staying within it, Oh, a horrible thing out there in some of the churches, teaching that you can, you can lose your salvation. Oh, people of God. No, no, it's an ordered covenant of grace. Pastor McDonald will preach that this evening on the perseverance of the saints. John Owen says, there are sins that if a believer should fall into, there are sins that if a believer should fall into would break the covenant, but the covenant prevents such falls. Those who are truly in its essence in the covenant of grace with the Lord are always, because the covenant and election are coordinate, as Romans 9 makes plain. And so it is ordered in all things, and notice the word, your ESV I think says certain, or look at it, will you? Ordered in all things and certain, the AV, ordered in all things and sure, no difference in the meaning, but it is a sure covenant, people of God, a sure covenant. Had we time to look at Hebrews 6, 17 through 20, the covenant has God's own oath behind it. I'm talking about the oath of the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God is behind his covenant with his people. Had we time to look at Hebrews 7, 22 through 25, we find the intervention of Christ. He was made the surety of a better covenant and is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for him. To say that it is sure implies the promises of the covenant, the promises of the Holy Spirit, the promise that he will grant faith, grant repentance, the promise that he will justify, the promise that he will sanctify us, that he will grant us perseverance, the promise that having established communion with you, you will always be in communion with him. It implies the promises of God who says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, you know, that's the covenant formula that is found throughout the Bible. I will be their God, they will be my people. It's found all the way to the end of the book because that's the purpose of God's redeeming his people. Isaiah 54, verse 10. For the mountain shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. Isaiah 55, we heard it this morning before the service began. Verse 3, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Psalm 89, verses 34 and 35, my covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. This covenant can never be antiquated the preaching of it can never be antiquated. Living upon it can never be antiquated. God will always keep his covenant. It is perpetual. So David in this text, David is soon to die. These are his last public prophetic words. He's soon to die. Will he die in peace? 
He's sinned greatly, but God has forgiven him. His house has, he, he, would, he would have longed for, for different for his children. His house is a mess. But yes, he will die in peace. It is a secure covenant, for this is all my salvation. And this year, undoubtedly, there will be someone, someone's, there will be someone in this congregation and you will speak your last words. Maybe you will know that they are your last public words, perhaps your last private words to family or to your pastors. Someone here undoubtedly will die this year. Will you die in peace? How will your last words compare to David's trust and heart? Will you be able to say, maybe through a whisper, the covenant ordered in all things ensure, everlasting, everlasting. Or to say his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Third point, implications of the covenant, and I'll only give a few. The first implication, enemies of the covenant will be cast down. Verses 6 and 7. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them. By the way, I wish the modern English versions would keep sons of Belial because you see it all the way through the Old Testament. It is, uh, it is a, a signal for worthless folk, worthless people, Christ rejectors, if you will, in the Old Testament setting. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. Enemies of the covenant will be cast down. Oh, do not be an enemy of the covenant. Do not be an enemy of the covenant God, but rather by faith embrace this covenant Christ and know the security of the covenant promises of God. Remember, the covenant is personal. What God requires in the covenant, grace, grace gives. And so trust in him. But then the second implication, and the most important for us, is that the covenant is the believer's support. And I know you need support. Just read scripture from beginning to end and see how the Lord has supported his people and promises to for eternity and how often covenant language is used. In trouble this year, you can by faith make use of the covenant promises. You can say he hath made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure, especially those truly his, he will keep forever and even now you can bank on that future reality. Richard Airline, in his book, Heaven Opened, Puritan, says, Farewell, deceitful world, get under my feet. I have feared your vain threats for too long. For too long have I been deluded by your flattering promises. Oh, my sins, I'm going where you cannot come, where no unclean thing shall enter 
nor anything that defiles. Now that's living on the covenant. Do you see what delight should be expressed by those with whom God has made his covenant and that we should be able to say that we are victorious over the world? You see, God gives himself to us in the covenant of grace. Think about what that means. Is God eternal? He says that his love for you will never fail. Is God unchangeable? He's the anchor for your soul. His promises will not change. Is he omnipotent? He will conquer all his and our enemies. Is he merciful? Then his mercies are for everlasting. Is he wise? He's our counselor. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Is he omnipresent? then he will always and everywhere be there for you. Our covenant God is all-sufficient, and that all-sufficiency is for every true believer in Jesus Christ. And all that he is, find in him your inheritance, find in him your portion. He is the covenant-keeping God. And we come to the Supper of the Lord this morning. And did you notice the scripture reading from Matthew 26? It speaks of the blood of the covenant. This everlasting ordered secure covenant, where do we find it most beautifully in scripture? The blood of Christ is the blood of the covenant. Spurgeon said somewhere, the blood of Christ is the ruby gem of the ring of love. How dreadfully earnest was God the Father when he gave his son, precious beyond all price, If he did not mean mercy, he would not have given up his beloved son. What are your sins and your failings? Believe, repent, trust the covenant promises. If he did not mean mercy, why would he give his son? If he did not mean mercy, why do we come to this table this morning? Rely, oh people of God, rely on the blood of the covenant. That covenant of grace ordered in all things ensure, despite your sins and failings, learn to rely upon his promises to grow you and mature you, delight in his free and unfathomable grace, and may the words of this text sustain you very often in this coming year. Well, that's my purpose as your pastor this morning. I I really am asking that when you sin, when you fail, when you believe, when you repent, when things are hard, when things are incomprehensible, when you don't understand what God is doing in your life, that you are able to say, I know this, God has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. This is all my salvation and this is all my desire. And God's people said,